You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships, striking from a hidden base, have won their first victory against the evil Galactic Empire. During the battle, Rebel spies manage to steal secret plans to the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. Pursued by the Empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship. Custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. But Princess Leia's cruiser is no match for the warship which swiftly overtakes her vessel. In moments, Imperial stormtroopers invade the rebel craft with a blaze of laser weapons. the main reactor will be destroyed for sure this is madness we're doomed there'll be no escape for the princess this time Hi, everybody, and welcome to GeekFest Rant. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we are going to be dipping back into Star Wars. First up, we are going to talk about Star Wars on Record, and by that I'm talking about story of Star Wars on Records. The LPs, the smaller uh, records, all those story of Star Wars and some of its sequels. The history of them and how they were released, which are better than others, how are they different and all that stuff. Then we are going to jump to another Star Wars legend, Colin Cantwell, conceptual designer, model builder, a man that doesn't get that much publicity, but somebody who is in the vein of a Ralph McQuarrie. He has kind of come out and started making the convention circuits. We'll talk about some of the material he's worked on Star Wars and other films and how this is a uh, another Star Wars person that we should really be paying attention to and looking over their lifelong work. So let's get started with the story of Star Wars on record. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. All right, today we're going to talk about Star Wars, but... Not so much the films, but the audio presentations of Star Wars. 
And specifically, what I mean by the audio presentations is the records, LPs, the story of Star Wars, ways to be able to listen to Star Wars. Uh, not so much the radio drama, because the radio drama is a category completely on its own. And the radio drama came out way later, you know, after Star Wars came out. However, what I'm talking about is the vinyl records we have or used to have and listen to uh, that would tell us the story of Star Wars. Now, there were primarily two different ones. The first one that came out originally was called The Story of Star Wars. This was an LP, a long play vinyl that came out around, I think, maybe at the end of 1977. And it included a 16-page kind of photo album of things that are happening in the movie. It runs for about 15 minutes. So obviously, you're not getting the entire, you know, two-plus-hour film. The narrator was Roscoe Lee Brown, famous actor, very noticeable voice. Uh, you know, you when you hear his voice, you instantly recognize him. And this particular version came out in a record, cassette, 8-track. Remember, this was the 70s. And reel-to-reel. You know, if you were really, really an audiophile. What's interesting about this is that you got to remember, and we've talked about this before, home video market doesn't exist at this point. It's still a while before they start putting out the, at least the eight millimeter versions of the film, whether it's the little hand crank toy that has the film inside that you can kind of watch some of the scenes here or there, or the actual eight millimeter, super eight millimeter whether it's the black and white, the silent, or the audio, the one without an actual audio track, uh, where you can watch that at home, you know, selected scenes, very short reels. But that was an expensive hobby if you were into 8mm. So the best way for us to be able to relive the Star Wars saga, because there was, again, there was no home video, other than the toys, you know, to be able to replay, you know, all these scenes uh, with your toys and your action figures was to listen to this record. Now, the cool thing about this record was that, yes, it was narrated by a non-Star Wars person, but everything within the record uh, was lifted directly out of Star Wars. They used the dialogue, the sound effects, the music, you know, all that stuff is in there. Uh, so it is exactly kind of like the movie, but compressed because it's 15 minutes. So they have to kind of, you know, cut and paste certain scenes. What's interesting about this record is that it was manufactured, you know, around the time when the movie was out. So they were able to use audio cues from the movie itself that were specifically the mono mix of the soundtrack. What's important about the mono mix is that when Star Wars was being put together towards the end, when they're mixing the audio, they had to create three different versions. They had to create a 70 millimeter version audio soundtrack, a... 35 millimeter stereo soundtrack and a 35 millimeter mono soundtrack. And there are very slight differences in all those soundtracks. This is something that later would get redone a number of times and retweaked and remixed as the future editions would come out, special editions and all those crazy tweaks that Lucas went through with all the Star Wars films. One of the things that he also did was remix the film sound. But back then, you know, they, they had three different versions going to three different locations, depending on what theater uh, was playing around your home. If you had a 70 millimeter theater, you were going to get a specific version. Now, overall, you probably wouldn't notice too much of a difference, but there are slight nuances in terms of 
more music, less dialogue. Some lines are actually changed. They're different. Some lines I might be missing. Very subtle, but it's there. But from what I understand, this LP was composed from the 35mm mono mix, which is apparently Lucas's favorite. You know, once he had put out the film, out of all three, that's the one that he preferred. So like I said before, this was actually the only way that you can kind of recreate that whole thing. And this is a period in time where, you know, the best you can hope for, and this was nothing new at the time, is when you had a super hit type of film, the best you can hope for is that they would re-release it a little later in the year. So if, in other words, if the run ended, maybe they would bring it back for Christmas or around Academy Award time. Or the following summer, they would bring it back again. Or before a sequel were to come out, they would re-release it again. There were periods of time where these kind of big blockbustery kind of films would get a second life. And that's a way of them obviously making more money and letting people see it again. Especially when you're dealing with sequels. You let them catch up to the story and that sort of thing. Nowadays, it's completely different. Nowadays, you watch a movie three months later, you can buy it, watch it a zillion times at home. <laughs> it's just completely a different, different model nowadays. But that's how we used to do it. And I remember I used to, you know, I, I used to love these things. Now, what's interesting, if I remember right, I actually owned something else. I did not pick this up right away. And reason being was that I came to the States in the fall of 79, which means I kind of missed the entire uh, waves of releases of merchandising. I was here before 79 just to visit. Uh, might have been 78 where I started picking up all my toys. Yeah, it, might, it has to be 78 because 77, there was nothing out. 78 is when they started pumping all the toys and that's when I was here and I grabbed probably the first 12, maybe a few more, I'm not entirely sure. And then 79 is when I started, Then when 79 is when I actually was here to stay, and then I started picking up play sets and ships and more characters, second wave, you know, the next, the next wave of toy, the action figures. So I missed that initial record release. However, I did pick up at the time what naturally came next in this line, which is the Star Wars read-along book. And this is a small record, 33 and a half RPM. And what I remember, and I don't know if you guys do or don't, your LPs were the large ones with the little hole in the middle because it went 33 and a half revolutions per minute RPM. But they also had small 33 and a halves, which means they had the little hole in the middle, as opposed to 45s that were much faster, that were that had a bigger hole. You actually had to put that hole, uh, you had to put that adapter in the middle of your uh, record player, and because it's a 45, it spun around a lot faster. Usually the 45s were manufactured to just hold one song, maybe two, but usually one, because you weren't putting that much information on it, so it had to spin faster, and it had to, you know, and it, it took up more space because of the speed. Anyway, that's technical information that you're really not worried about, but the point is that my introduction to any sort of record having to do with Star Wars, other than the soundtrack, we're not talking about soundtracks here, we're just talking about the story being told, was that that read-along book. Now, what's really interesting about the read-along book is it came out in 79, which makes sense because that's when I got here to stay. It was released by Buena Vista Records. Buena Vista Records was basically Disney. So this is the first time that Disney gets involved with Lucasfilm in 
putting out a product, which is unusual because, you know, Lucasfilm was putting a lot of their own product, you know, to their own uh, licensees holders. And they weren't really flirting with Disney too much at first. Not like now that they <laughs> outright own Lucasfilm. This particular record is only 12 minutes long. So it's a it's an even faster telling of the story. And absolutely no original actors were used, which is a very unusual thing when you think about it nowadays, because one of the only actors, Anthony Daniels, who plays C-3PO, to kind of claim the, the mantle of being in just about every single Star Wars thing recorded, you know, conceivable, is Anthony Daniels, except for these Star Wars read-along books. Now, from what I understand, the, the reason they put out these little read-along books was that they convinced... Lucasfilm, that as opposed to the story of Star Wars, the purpose of this wasn't to just retell the whole story as accurately as possible by using sound effects and all that stuff and the same voices and the same music and all that stuff. But these were supposed to be more educational. So that was kind of like the hook of this particular book was that you would read, again, they're called read-along books because you would read the story on the little booklet and the story, you know, word by word is exactly what's being told to you by the narrator and by the actors. And these are the books, If you again, if you remember, is they read certain lines and then you hear a sound effect. In this particular case, it would be R2-D2. And then you would know when to flip the page and go to the next page. And this is kind of supposed to help kids learn how to read, how to, how to read along, you know, the narration that's being told to you. You're following the words on the book. So the hook of this particular product was that it was somewhat of an educational aid. Now, like I said before. For this particular thing, there were no actual voices. The actors were not used, but the music and the sound effects were there. Now, this read-along concept was nothing new because Disney had put out many, many books of that sort before. Obviously, Disney properties. But this was the first time, I believe, that they were kind of going a little bit outside of Disney to try to put out something else. And not only were they able to pick something huge like Star Wars, but this was the first time that their actual read-along books would include pictures. Because before, they would always use art. Because obviously, most of these properties were animated films. So... Now you have pictures of that. And that's kind of how I kind of made that connection is that, you know, I had the little read-along book. And again, they were also very good for me now that I think about it because the read-along book, you know, 1979, I just got here. I'm learning how to speak English. I'm learning how to read <laughs> and write English. So they were really helpful, I, I imagine, in, in kind of, you know, helping along in, in that manner. At some point, I don't know when it was, I did pick up the other album. Now, you, you got to remember also, I have the soundtrack, you know, I'm absorbing that soundtrack left and right, you know, without any problems. But now it's another way of kind of keeping the movie alive in your head, you know, when you're playing or you're just listening to it. And, and there it is. Granted, it's only a 12 minute version of the movie, but hey, what are you going to do? That's what you get. Now, as everything progressed with other films, for example, The Empire Strikes Back, they did put out also a story of type of LP. That is one that I, for some reason, I never bothered picking up. And I'm not sure why. It's possible that because by then, the home market was starting to very slowly trickle into, you know, the ether of consumer products. The first video was right around the corner. The first videotape version of Star Wars was just around the corner. 
I had also somehow gotten into 8mm film, Super 8 color, with sound. My dad had gotten me one or two reels, I think, of The Empire Strikes Back after Empire came out. So the story of Empire Strikes Back, you know, in that LP form was something that never really got on my radar. Again, remember, no internet, no access to anything I find I would have found at a record store or even a convention. But I don't think back then I was going to conventions yet. I wasn't into the convention circuit yet. So the Empire Strike Back record, you know, the story of completely bypassed me altogether. But from what I understand, there are probably two versions available. One of them has the picture of the snow walker and the um, snow speeder you know, coming at each other in an angle, and it has the the same 16-page uh, booklet, kind of booklet inside that where you can kind of look at some of the pictures as you're reading the story. The other one, which is the one I got through eBay not too long ago, just as part of my, you know, collecting, you know, vintage Star Wars stuff, is one that has a drawing, Vader and Luke battling on Bespin, on the uh, Cloud City freeze chamber, one of those areas. But it's a hand-drawn art type of thing with a lot of pictures all the way around it. This particular version of it does not have a booklet inside, but the other one does. So I'm not entirely sure why one has it and one doesn't have it. One Is it possible one was released overseas, one was released here? I don't know. Uh, but when you open up the two-fold LP cover, there are kind of like 32 small pictures of the entire movie as it's happening uh, with, I think, little quotes on them and everything. So it's kind of like instead of putting the booklet, they basically put all the potential pictures of the booklet in the jacket. So you can kind of look at that. Interesting. Very unusual. And like I said, that completely bypassed me because by then I had somehow skipped it altogether and I was already in another completely other world. With that said, you also got a read-along book for Empire Strikes Back. Same format as before. Smaller, shorter, read-along, no known actors, attached to it. These were all internal Disney people doing the voices. And again, even Anthony Daniels was not in it. Then we move on to Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi, for some reason, I did get that one. That LP I did purchase. And it is more of the traditional, you know, you open it up, you take out the 16-page booklet, you go look at the pages, you listen to the story. And just like Star Wars and Empire, those two LPs are exactly, you know, all that information is coming directly from the movie's soundtrack, including the actors and the sound effects and the music. But I believe the narrator, uh, they might have switched to a different performer by, by, you know, by Empire and Jedi. And this was a good one, too. This was a good one, too. And I could only imagine that I bought it because I was just such a nutty Star Wars fan. And I must have ran into it at the store. I remember, you know, you go to the record store and that's the place where you go and buy records. And usually there wasn't any other record store in town. You know, that was the record store. I wasn't old enough or, or crazy enough at the time that I would go to different record stores, in different towns, you know, chasing stuff down. No, that wasn't my thing. And, you know, the Internet is just such a monster in terms of opening up resources nowadays that, you know, you can get anything you want anywhere from anywhere, anytime. And, but back then, you know, you really didn't do a lot of legwork. <laughs> whatever was nearest you, that's where you went, whether it was for toys or records or whatever. So... Once again, Return of the Jedi, we have the Return of the Jedi read-along book, same format, same small record, same actors used as before, you know, unknown to us who they were. And that was basically the end of the read-along wave of books. But 
later, in the late 90s, I believe, mid to late 90s, it was before the special editions, Disney decided to republish or reprint <laughs> these read-along books. And at this point, you know, technology has progressed somewhat. So now we're dealing with CDs. Now, keep in mind that some of these were also, like I mentioned earlier, they were released, depending on what year it was, you know, on cassette also, especially the read-along books. But now we're in the 90s and, you know, there's new technology, so they're completely bypassing records and cassettes anymore. They're going straight to CD. And not only were they able to, at this point, to re-record everything in new technology, but the books are going to look different. They're going to use different pictures, different text. They're going to use different actors. So now we're dealing with actual actors that we can kind of more or less follow in terms of who they are. Here's where you're going to have Anthony Daniels show up like he would normally show up on just about everything. And in these books, Anthony Daniels was probably the only original actor who was able to do his own voice because the other ones really weren't that interested in something so far, you know, detached you know, <laughs> from the whole saga that, you know, he is the guy that does them. But however, what's interesting is that there are a few actors that return, not from the movie, but return from the radio drama. So specifically, I'm talking about Pat Paris, who played Princess Leia, Brock Peters, who played Darth Vader, Joshua Fardon, who played Luke Skywalker in the Return of the Jedi radio drama, because Mark Hamill had originally, you know, played him in Star Wars and Empire's radio drama. Perry King, playing Han Solo, again, from the radio dramas. So it is really interesting when you get some of these guys who are, you know, you can kind of start making some connections of, oh, wow, they actually played these characters before, but never in the screen. You also get Corey Burton, who is a big deal, you know, when it comes to voiceover work. He's done a ton, ton of voices. He's done work later also in the Clone Wars animated series. And I think he might have done some work at Rebels. I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, he's he's a guy that also did a ton of Star Wars voice work through his career. In these particular editions of the read-along books, he plays Yoda. So this is very interesting. You know, all of a sudden now you have an entire new wave. They're packaged differently, different pictures, same concept. And again, they are at least able to bring in, you know, Anthony Daniels, you know, for some actual Star Wars street cred, if you will. But there are some familiar names, you know, if you were familiar with the radio dramas that all of a sudden are part of this project. So they put out these three books, you know, the original trilogy. And then right around the corner, you have the prequel trilogies come out. Now, with the prequel trilogies, they do something different once again. Well, we are getting them in CD, obviously, because that's the format that we're dealing with. They're still read-along books. Fine, perfect. You read, you follow the script. Great, wonderful. And you have the sound effects, you have the music, you know, you have the usual fanfare related to these things. But what they're doing this time around is that they are using actual lines from the film by the real actors. They're not recreating the lines, they're just lifting them, similar to what the original story of Star Wars LP did. So that means that they have to kind of work around the existing lines. They can't just write their own lines anymore because these actors are not going to come in and redo their lines. They have to work with what they have. And that's how they did them, you know, for the prequel trilogies. Not only, and part of the reason is is also the fact that they no longer put out 
you know, full-blown albums or full-blown CDs, something that's about, you know, 50 minutes to an hour long for people to buy because people are really not interested anymore. The home video market has exploded for years. The internet had exploded for a number of years. So there just wasn't a need anymore for that sort of thing. So now, if you're interested in listening to Star Wars, this is it. This is all you have. And also the duration. I believe they went a little longer now. No longer were we dealing in a 12-minute story. Now we're getting a little closer to 20 minutes, so it's it's changing a little bit. So the prequels come and go, and all of a sudden now we have a new trilogy. Wow, we have a new trilogy. Isn't that great? Well, for the new trilogy, uh, which we're right now, as of today, we're only on episode two. <laughs> we're only on the second part of the new trilogy, which would be episode eight. We had seven and eight. The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. Here we have, again, a CD format. Same picture and read format, same sound effects, music, and they are continuing once again with the original characters lifting their lines from the movie. They're no longer rewriting the script, you know, and using their own actors. Now we are in this, you know, prequel trilogy mode of just putting, editing it all together from the original dialogue, the original soundtrack of the film. And like before, it's a little longer now. It's about 20 minutes. It's still pretty fast. And because again, the purpose of this is supposed to, to help kids learn to read, you know, in their reading exercises, if you will. And by now, at this point, ironically, by the time we got The Force Awakens, Disney now owns Lucasfilm. So it is really, really interesting how, you know, this property that they kind of dabbled in some marketing of, you know, license holding many, many years ago, you know, when everything first started, pretty much two years after the movie was released in 79, that 35, 40 years later, you know, Disney now <laughs> owns it all. So it's really, really ironic that this is where we are right now. At this point, it really doesn't really matter in terms of, um, you know, people really don't go that crazy over these kind of books. They are pretty easy to find on the internet. Uh, obviously, the newer material, you can just buy at Amazon directly from Amazon. I'm sure eBay, you can find them too. But it's all out there. You can just grab them. Most of these are also available at YouTube. You can listen to these on YouTube. You know, people have uploaded tons of versions of this. The original ones, obviously, you're not going to find them at the stores or even at Amazon at decent prices. You can still find them on eBay uh, and at pretty good prices. I mean, some of these story of LPs, they might cost only 10 bucks, 15 bucks. So they're a pretty vintagey kind of thing to collect if that's your thing. And what's unusual I'm finding is that they never put out one for Rogue One. And I don't understand why. I don't understand if they only want to stick to trilogies. Uh, you know, we have Solo coming out soon. Logic tells me they won't put out one for Solo because if they didn't put Rogue One, why would they put Solo? So it's a very unusual uh, selection of why, you know, why they did some and not the others. Uh, maybe they're waiting for three standalone films to be able to put them as a package. Who the heck knows? But it just doesn't make sense. But they are a reminder of how things were different back then and how, you know, these kind of things uh, were the type of merchandise that would kind of keep us going to help us fuel our, our imagination and are trying to make the story up as we went along without having it in front of us like we do now. You know, between the tops cards, the action figures, all the ships and, and, and play sets, and even the soundtrack, obviously, that kind of fueled it all. And then you can throw this on top, these story ofs, and even the smaller ones, the read-alongs. You know, that's how we kind of fueled our, our passion for Star Wars, you know, when we were that young. It's a thing that 
I'm sure young kids today can never understand and relate to because now you press a button and you can watch all these films on your phone, on your TV, on your computer. Who wants to just hear it? And who the heck wants to hear it with other people reading it? You know, even the radio dramas, for example, it's like, who wants that? You know, it's a very nostalgic thing that really, I think, might only appeal to, you know, us original you know, OT, <laughs> original trilogy Star Wars people. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special news bulletin direct via satellite from our on-the-spot task force. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Thank you, Bob. It's Mort. Mort, yes. I am Ted Baxter, and here is the news. Today we're going to take a look at Star Wars in a way that we haven't had a chance to do so before. The closest way that we've done this is when we examine the life of Ralph McQuarrie, for example, which is a very important contributor to the pre-production of Star Wars, something that, you know, helped represent the movie before there was anything to show anybody. This is something that Lucas was able to use not only to get funding for the film, but later on to actually inspire and design, you know, what would become the final products of, you know, not only characters, but locations, vehicles, ships, creatures, you name it. A lot of that stuff came from Ralph McQuarrie. But today we are going to go in a different direction. We're going to go with a different artist named Colin Cantwell. Now, if you are, you know, one of the uh, Star Wars deep dive type of person when it comes to concept vehicles and concept material, Colin Cantwell is a very interesting name that keeps popping up every now and then, just like Joe Johnston. Uh, I know that Ralph McQuarrie is probably the most let's just say, commercially known one out of all of them. He kind of uh, seems to have stuck around the longest, I think, as far as uh, his contributions while the films were being produced. You know, a lot of these artists, little by little, they kind of go and do other projects and kind of leave the family, if you will. But Colin Cantwell really was in the be- there in the beginning, similar to Ralph McQuarrie. However, his particular expertise was not only doing some sketch drawings, but producing 3D mock-ups, models, conceptual models specifically, um, having to do with Star Wars. Now, granted, you know, as a, I guess as a model maker at the time or whatever he happened to be doing, you know, his contributions are very different, but they kind of intertwine a little bit with a lot of the McQuarrie work. His background before Star Wars was, in a little similar way, just like McQuarrie had some experience with, you know, space design, drawings, that sort of thing he used to do, so did Colin Campbell. He participated in some of the animation done for the moon landing and, you know, that kind of thing. But he seems to kind of, if you look at his biography, he seems to kind of bounce around a lot. He goes from, you know, from, from something like that, all of a sudden jumping on Star Wars... Then going in Close Encounters, Buck Rogers, even War Games, you know, he kind of bounces a lot. And he had some experience also during 2001, which is a big, big, important thing that 
at the time, uh, even George Lucas was trying to look for people, you know, from that group to be able to help, you know, with this sort of a production that he was trying to put together. So the type of material that you are going to be associating Cantwell with um, is a little harder to find than Macquarie. A lot of the books, again, if you go into the making of Star Wars, the Rinsler book, there's a lot of material in there. On the internet, there's tons of material. And a lot of it is kind of sprinkled all throughout the hundreds or of books that are out there having to do with Star Wars. A lot of this material, obviously, that he produced, a lot of these models became, obviously, Lucasfilm property. So they're in the archives of Lucasfilm, and they every now and then you'll see a picture of it you know being used as reference for whatever they happen to be doing at the time or believe it or not stuff that's being done today one of the number one rules having to do with star wars is that we throw nothing away everything these concept artists made especially in the past especially the original concepts those kind of seem to stick around quite a bit so not only are Macquarie drawings and concepts being recycled all throughout, you know, future films that they were doing, animated shows, you know, Clone Wars, Rebels, all that stuff. And up to this day, you know, if you go through Force Awakens, Rogue One, Last Jedi, and Solo, you do have now apparently some Colin Cantwell stuff and some other stuff that we're going to talk about. So let's first try to figure out exactly which are the models that we're talking about that he seems to have contributed the most. Well, one of his claims to fame appears to be the X-Wing. The way that he explains it in a number of interviews is that, you know, George wanted, you know, a clear designation, a clear reference point of being able to identify the good guys from the bad guys when it came to these dogfights. If you look at traditional World War II movies, you know, based on obviously history, sometimes it's a little difficult to kind of tell the planes apart. Now, granted, yes, you do have slightly different shapes on the plane, slightly different wings, definitely different color, you know, markings on them. But that is still something that, you know, you always had that little issue of, wait a minute, who's the, which is the good guy, which is the bad, you know, that kind of a problem. Uh, Because the movements are so fast that it's hard to kind of figure out which is which. So this is probably nothing new, but in terms of, you know, wanting to be able to display a clear physical difference between good guys and bad guys. So you have the X-shape good guy ship and the kind of like the ball with the two side panels as the bad guy ship. Uh, Now, they never really went into... You know, how would the TIE fighter land and how would the pilot get on them? That sort of thing. I believe they kind of stuck around with the idea that these are primarily space boarded type of ships. So you're never going to really, really have to mess around with having them land and have to lean on those foils. Uh, So that is uh, something they kind of really didn't bother, you know, to have to research too much and explain it. You know, it could be that these are just spaceships so they're always going to be docked in some shape or form and that's how people get in and out and that's how they keep those together the x-wings on the other hand from the earlier point they had decided that they wanted these ships to be able to land in regular you know atmospheric land (laughs) so 
not only did they want those wings to be able to like crisscross each other, but uncross each other. This way, uh, by uncrossing them, you give them the space needed for the actual body of the ship to land on the ground and some with some kind of landing gear, obviously. Now, what's important here is that the original design, the original drawings he put together, there were variations on them. At first, they were very thick, thick body and kind of stubby, kind of short, kind of pointy. Uh, more traditional, if you will, but still with that, you know, X shape to it. And now what's important to understand is that the X shape is more like a traditional X. If you look at the X-Wing now, it is not a full X in terms of all those wings being equally spaced apart from each other. It's almost an incomplete X, the way that the final version ended up being. But in all these drawings that are being put together, they're kind of st sticking still to that full X mode, you know, to be able to separate those guns the most possible. And he says that the inspiration that he had was kind of like a, you know, like, a, and again, a lot of this could be coming from George too, because he's, you know, he's kind of feeding them what he's looking for. And then these artists are coming up with their ideas. But he says that he kind of made it so that it's kind of like a cowboy drawing his gun. You go from a completely normal pose to all of a sudden having both guns out there. And that is what he was trying to go for with the X-Wing technique. Is that you go from a traditional looking flying you know, vehicle, which with all of a sudden, with the press of a button, you're doubling the amount of guns you know, by triggering these X-Wing shape formations. You know, doubling your guns. Going from two to four in a way, even though you really do always have those four guns there. Now, he did sketches, he did drawings, he did paintings of what this would look like. Uh, like I said before, the first one was a little stubbier, fatter, uh, not as long, you know, as far as the body. Uh, the second one is a little more like what we're used to, still not exactly the same, but it's still maintaining that full X formation. And at that point, he was able to then go and produce a model for that particular one. So for the actual model, uh, you have the nice, wide, spaced apart wings equally spaced from each other. And the length of the nose of the ship is almost as long as the spacing between the wings. So it doesn't seem like it's long enough, if you will, you know, if you kind of compare it to the final product. Now, it's understood from the beginning that these are not models to be used on the film. These are conceptual models inspirational models that people are then going to incorporate into their art into their model making to kind of use them as a jump off point to you know where to go next so yes a lot of these things change dramatically and then some of them actually stayed the same well by looking at it you can kind of tell you know off the bat that there is a slight race car component, you know, slick, super fast race car, because I believe he might have actually used an actual race car when he put together the actual models. This guy is also one of the many responsible artists for the kit bashing technique. Basically going into your models, pieces, and putting together out of something out of all these little leftover pieces and coming up with something in that manner, rather than have to, you know, cast and mold all these, you know, sculpt, cast and mold all these different new invented pieces, he kind of puts it together from already existing ones. So that is one of the things about it that is, is also different is that 
In the final product, they did elongate the body a little more. They also gave it a slight nose, if you think about it, a slight tip to the front of the X-Wing. And i pretty clear in remembering that they had a, a little bit of work to work on that tip because they, they I remember reading something about they didn't want it to look obscene. And I know exactly what they're talking about because of the fact that if you make that tip a little too large, a little too out of proportion, it starts to get a little bit weird. <laughs> so that's something that I remember, uh, you know, about that. And I'm sure a lot of people who are trying to draw an X-Wing might run into that problem sometimes. But another thing that's really interesting about his particular design is that it has five engines. You have the four normal engines that we're used to seeing, but, but it also has a fifth one right dead center in the middle in the back. That is very interesting because that is what they did on The Last Jedi in the beginning of the movie when Poe Dameron is testing out this super fast new engine that they added to his ship. That seems to do the trick. Now, another story that uh, I've, I've heard about, you know, why is it that the X shape did not remain in the final product is that he says that at ILM, when they actually put together the final version, the wings were supposed to go all the way, but something happened and the wings would not rotate in that manner. They would not extend all the way up. They would only go up to a certain point and stop right there. And everybody kind of liked the way that looked. It looked a little better. So that's basically how we ended up with, you know, not the full crisscross of the X of the X-Wing. Then we have what is considered to be, at the time, an Imperial starship. This is the beginning, I think, of what the Star Destroyers eventually will become. The shape of it is kind of um, a little difficult to describe. It's easier for you to see. Think of the Star Destroyer body without the elevated platforms, you know, that carrier stacked buildings addition to at the end. But think of it as an arrow almost, with that being the tip of the spear and then behind it a whole other compartment, which is the body of the spear. And at three different sections, at left side, right side, these big uh, radar-looking dishes pointing in different directions, depending on which way they want to make these things point. And in the rear, also having one of these radar dishes. Now, these radar dishes, from what I understand, are supposed to be weapons. So uh, they're not just uh, listening devices. And there are other antenna-type devices, you know, all over the place. And this is where the bad guys are supposed to be flying their main, you know, uh, uh, units of, of, of troops. And the good guys are supposed to be attacking this thing. Now, this is something that never made it to model form in its shape. But what is super, super interesting is that on the solo film, we see that exact design brought to film. Because they have something called the Arrestor Cruiser. The Arrestor Imperial Cruiser. And it is exactly that. Exactly, exactly that. There's a toy of it, you know, that they just put out. A tiny, small, little Hot Wheel version of this ship in miniature, obviously. But it looks exactly the same. So there is no doubt, absolutely no doubt whatsoever, that they've gone and mined for that kind of material to include in this particular film. So it's really, really weird how these designs that never even made it, you know, to any form of model phase 
now they're bringing back and using them straight in the film. Now, of this particular ship, I believe he painted maybe about three different paintings of it, all of them depicting, you know, the good guys shooting at this ship, attacking it, and the ship shooting back and that sort of thing. So, you know, those pictures are out there too. Now, there are other drawings that he made, sketches, uh, almost pretty much fully rendered paintings, you know, that depict other sort of ships, fighters, that sort of thing. But they're kind of more modernish looking. Some of them kind of look like stealth fighter-y type of designs. But that obviously never even made it anywhere close to Star Wars. For the TIE Fighter, it pretty, pretty much retained its original shape. Except that the connection between the center turret and the actual foils on the side, the... Um, the wings, if you will. His original concept had it more of a straight tube-like connection. For the final version of the film, they made it a little more architecturally constructed, if you will. It has more ridges and more connections than just a plain, simple tube. The colors here are also different. They have a blue, very dark blue body, and the wings are black, jet black, with some, you know, silvery type of accents to them to reflect, I guess, some of the uh, electronics or the other materials. But it's it's definitely a two-tone type of thing. Obviously, by the time we get to Star Wars, it's more of an off-white, dark gray kind of motif. And then when we get to Empire, it kind of starts to turn a little blue sometimes. Again, I'm not sure if this is by choice or just by, you know, film stock or lighting or whatever. But there is definitely a difference. And there's also there a difference in the toys. The toys also change colors. Again, not sure exactly why, but they did. This is one that also went, you know, model. It went straight to model from concept drawing to model. So this is really a, a cool looking one that, that seemed to have kind of retained its shape the most. Then we have the Star Destroyer. The more traditional Star Destroyer that we're familiar with now. That is one that I believe started out... As I mentioned earlier, as this other Imperial cruiser, and they basically kind of took off the back, took off the radar dishes, and built upon, you know, the, the back of it, that area that gives you all of the command bridge and all that stacked up uh, stuff that we're used to seeing, more like a, like a Navy carrier. It also originally had some pretty big, uh, or at least not so much big, but noticeable guns you know, at the edges, at the left and right edges, and also at the tip. And I believe this is something that they had to remove, again, by the time they got to the final version, you know, the, the one that would be used for filming, uh, this is one that they had to remove those because they were so thin and so possibly frail that they might they, they were going to have problems shooting it. Something that small protruding out of such a massive ship. Also, the, the, the bridge area itself, they minimized it a little more. The, his model has it a little more built up. It seems to almost take up anywhere from a third to a half of the, of the floor space, you know, of that gigantic triangular arrowhead shape. You know, for the final film, they brought it back more towards the rear. So you do have this long, long sweeping, you know, top side without it being interrupted by the formations, you know, of all these bridges and buildings and structures. Then he uh, also did some designs and models for the Y-Wing, which is the companion piece, you know, to the 
X-Wing, obviously the big dramatic part of the film at the end where we get to see these other model ships, which is pretty cool. That also went through a series of changes. I mean, the basic body stayed pretty much the same. The difference is that it also had a little, on top of it having the regular cockpit, you know, up in the front, it had a little bubble top turret to be able to shoot behind you, you know, with another person there, you know, under a little glass bubble, kind of like a World War II bomber. And then another one underneath. Uh, That was part of the original design or the original idea. By the time he actually put it together, you know, in order to be, to, to have a model version of it, I believe he might have already removed the bottom one. Because I think they kind of realized it was a little too difficult, you know, landing gear-wise, you know, and always having, I guess maybe that's usual problem of bombers, that if the landing gear fails, whoever's in that bubble is going to get crushed. So uh, by the time we have that model, you know, it, it looks different. Now, what's interesting to keep in mind here, and this applies to a lot of this material, not only the art, but especially the models, that he is working and doing his stuff at the same time as Ralph McQuarrie is doing his stuff. So a lot of times you will see some of these model shapes or designs being incorporated into the McQuarrie design. But later, when they go in a different direction, you know, McQuarrie will also change his previous portrait so that they change the look of whatever ship has been modified. So there are versions out there, if you look, of the same painting, you know, but the ship looks different. Everybody's standing in the same location, let's say, and the background looks the same, but the ship all of a sudden has a different structure to it. That's because as the creative process continued, Macquarie started to change them as he went along. And this you know, also shows how these conceptual models were also influencing you know, other artists around and vice versa. Then you have one of the most difficult ships, I think, for them to come up with, and that is the Millennium Falcon. Originally, the Falcon, as a lot of people know, was supposed to be kind of the shape of the Rebel Blockade Runner. Some of the original designs have it as a a very long kind of ship, not like what eventually the Blockade Runner had, but just like a a big, big engine in the back, and a very, let's just say, Millennium Falcon-ish looking cockpit right in the center, dead center in the front. And he kind of, in one of the interviews, Campbell kind of talks about how that ship was supposed to kind of almost look like a lizard. You know, you have the four legs and it's kind of standing on it and it's very long and it's looking forward. It's always looking forward. You know, there's a very, uh, there's ve- there are very interesting influences attached to a lot of these things. You know, it had those what looked like to be escape pod uh, sections. You know, again, if you think of the blockade runner, that's what we're talking about. But at a certain point, it was decided rightly so, that at the same time as they're putting this together, the show Space 1999 is on, and one of the most prominent, iconic ships of that show was the Eagle. And the Eagle had a similar-looking structure. It had the long hallway, like a you know body, standing on four legs, with a very cockpit-ish-looking head at the tip. So what they decided at that point is that, all right, you know, even though... Again, Macquarie had done some of the art with the picture of this particular ship as the Falcon. They decided, right, we got to scrap it. We cannot do this. So the body of this particular ship was then modified a little bit, quite a a bit, but it still kind of stayed the same. But then the head, the actual head 
was removed and built completely different to give it that hammerhead shark look to it that the Rebel Blockade Runner has. And the cockpit was the only thing that remained, you know, of the original Falcon that kind of worked its way into the final version of the Falcon, you know, the more of the, you know, the hamburger version, if you will, of the Falcon. But that original Cantwell design, you know, I would say that 90% of it or 80% of it remained the same for the Rebel Blockade Runner. Now, Cantwell also did a version of the Landspeeder, Luke's Landspeeder. And it's an interesting story that I've heard him talk about is that because Lucas apparently wanted something that was more Buck Roger-ish, if you will. And Campbell didn't want to go in that direction because he says it would have been like copying that design altogether. So instead, he kind of went in the direction of this big circular kind of dragster ship, which looks nothing, (laughs) looks practically nothing like what the final product is. And ironically, the final product did end up looking almost identical to a Flash Gordon comic book design. So I guess Lucas got his way in one way or the other. If one artist won't do it, he'll find another one to do it for him. But this is an interesting one because, yes, this one also made it all the way to model, conceptual model. Then you have the Jawa Sandcrawler. This is one that he kind of talks about not being too happy with the final design. And it is a very blockish, squarish, triangular, pyramid, almost kind of like looking vehicle. Uh, You don't really see the threads like you do in the final version. To me, it looks like something out of Dune. It looks very mechanical, very utilitarian, something out of the Soviet Union, you know, very... (laughs) (laughs) very cold and very non-human. Again, they went in a completely different direction for this one. They changed the design and uh, the final product looks nothing like that. But it's an interesting model, you know, nevertheless. You know, again, a lot of these things, I would say the majority of them are all made from kid bashing. You, you, You do see little bits and pieces of a lot of older, you know, models in there. And Another one that he did was the Skyhopper. Now, the Skyhopper apparently was supposed to be another kind of hero vehicle in the earlier drafts of the film that later turned into a unnecessary vehicle, kind of, that kind of was used as a background representation of what the full-size hot rod that Luke has. Because the Landspeeder is really not a hot rod. The Landspeeder is the vehicle. His hot rod is the Skyhopper. So we never really see it in action in the movie. We kind of see it in the background, but you have to kind of point it out to people to see, oh, it's that piece right there, that what you could see through the door. That's what it's supposed to be. And obviously, you know, we do see Luke holding it, you know, in his hand when he's like in in his garage. And uh, ironically, because that never really made it to the film in a a full-blown fashion, whether it's a miniature model or a fully constructed one, I believe they might have actually used the exact conceptual model that Cantwell did, you know, so that Luke is actually holding it. So what you see there, you know, in in A New Hope, you know, Luke playing with it, you know, he's kind of holding it and that, that sort of thing. That might be it. The final piece that I want to talk about that he did was also the one of the earliest versions of the Death Star. Now, this is an interesting one because he does have an interesting story about the fact that, you know, for the first model of it, yes, it's supposed to be a moon. So he kind of started working with the idea of putting a moon together. And he didn't have a full circular ball-shaped structure to work with. He had apparently two halves, two semicircular halves, two halves of an orange, if you think about it. And he thought that he was going to have problems uniting these two pieces together. 
that there will always be some sort of a seam or something wouldn't show right, even though he is completely has it covered in all kinds of little bits and pieces of models to give it structure, to give it detail, to give it little bumps here and there. So it kind of feels not like just a perfect solid ball, but something a little more detailed. Well, his suggestion was, according to him, to Lucas, to possibly add an equatorial trench. This way, it would be easier for him then to be able to put these two pieces together and have an excuse to have, you know, an area that is not perfectly fused together between the top and the bottom. He even suggested, you know, well, you know, the trench itself could be something that is completely top to bottom decorated in the same manner instead of a smooth, solid, you know, trench. Give it also all these structural pipes and pieces that it looks like, you know, heavy, heavy construction with no appeal whatsoever for design, you know, or make it look nice. Just it's only useful for its purpose and that's it. Give it that that kind of look. And apparently Lucas went for it. He's like, okay, let's go that and let's use it. And that's why apparently we ended up with some form of a trench. It was a way of getting around a structural problem. Now, there's a number of websites, including his own, where you can purchase uh, some of his drawings, you know, prints of his drawings, and he'll autograph them. And a few years ago, I think maybe a year ago or two years ago, I actually ordered one because all of a sudden this guy popped up on the internet. He was apparently very quiet for most of his life and most of his career. And he's, I believe, like almost 86 years old now so a few years ago he decided to kind of come out and let people know who he was and attend conventions and start doing signings and sell stuff so it's an interesting situation to be in you know i hope i get a chance to meet him you know at some of these conventions uh, that sometimes i get to go uh, that would be interesting i was able to order one of his prints and i have an X-Wing print, you know, signed by him. And it's it's interesting because it's, yeah, it's like one of these behind-the-scenes guys that really, really got kind of lost in the shuffle. It's, it's really, really interesting. And there's very interesting stories about how and why he decided all of a sudden to start getting involved and, and trying to sell some of his old stuff. He, I think he put a lot of his original material up for auction a few years ago, and he sold a lot of it. But like I said, he still does the convention circuit. And very, very, very interesting stories. <laughs> he is a, if you watch his interviews, he's a, he's a very sharp guy. He's very artsy. And man, is he into his stuff. And the thing that's interesting about him is that he seems to jump from one thing to the other to the other. As an artist, he's never content or he never seems to be content with only working in one medium. He goes from one thing and then he has to do another and then he has to go on to something else. He's worked in computers. He's worked in IMAX uh, development, model making, sketch, you know, electronics. You know, it's just incredible how much this guy has bounced around so much. And all of a sudden now he's becoming, you know, more of a public figure. One interesting aspect of this is that, and again, it always fascinates me. And I, like I said earlier, nothing is wasted. Everything is reused. Pretty soon, they're going to release a Hot Wheels set. I believe right now it's scheduled for five individual packages 
of similar to the one I just mentioned before, the one that is going to be that is that I already own that is marketed under the solo banner. They are marketing a wave of five Star Wars original concept series starships. And all of these are Cantwell designs. So these are miniatures, you know, hot wheel size. And the ones that they're going to be having available are the Millennium Falcon, which is the original Falcon, the, the, the Space 1999 looking one, TIE Fighter, an X-Wing, a Star Destroyer, and the Land Speeder. So I cannot wait for these because these are so up my alley. This is exactly, exactly the kind of stuff I absolutely love. All this concept stuff that gets lost in the shuffle. Well, here we go. Um, it's coming back in one shape or another. Some of these might have been kind of done a while back. I remember the Alpha series from, I don't know if it was Kenner or uh, Hasbro at that point. They had produced uh, sets where kind of like the the final product miniature ship and a very tiny, almost micro-machine sized version of the concept. Some of these look a little familiar to those back and forth kind of ships. But obviously, these are brand new, fresh moldings, fresh sculpts, everything new. And I love it. It's a series of five. I hope they make more because there are, as I mentioned before, a lot of other ones that he could have uh, you know, possibly been involved with. And as usual, you know what? Why don't we explore Joe Johnston and some of these other guys that <laughs> contributed quite a bit you know, to this movie that we all love so much. But I will try to include a few of the clips, you know, of some of these interviews uh, and um, where you can find more information about him. Because, you know, he is kind of getting up there in his age and uh, it would be great to be able to meet him, you know, soon. And man, I wish we could have one of these uh, original, I wish I could own one of these original concept uh, uh, models. Like I said before, the models are all under lock and key at Lucasfilm, <laughs> if you're interested in seeing them in person. But the uh, uh, concept art, the original art, a lot of it has been sold in, I believe, in an auction, a high profile, kind of like a Hollywood auction type of deal. Uh, but he is making the rounds, going to conventions and selling, you know, his prints. So give it a shot. <laughs> Well, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We kind of went back to Star Wars again, this time around with a different type of collectible that we kind of overlook many times, and that is the story of Star Wars. The records, the different kinds of records that they have put out in the past, and that they sort of continue to put out nowadays, you know, for a different way of being able to listen to the story of Star Wars. I and mean, this is not a book on record type of thing, but a, a bridged quicker, very children-friendly, you know, version of Star Wars. And then we did a little bit of a profile on Colin Cantwell, a Star Wars uh, conceptual designer, conceptual artist, model maker, and all the other different things he's done in the past. Because, you know, through the solo film, he kind of has a little bit of revival now. Not as big as I wish it would have been. But, you know, he does have a huge contribution, especially to those that are really into... All of the conceptual artwork and model making having to do, you know, with the early designs of Star Wars. So on behalf of everyone here, thank you for listening and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. This is the story of Star Wars, The Last Jedi. You can read along with me in your book. You'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear this sound.
Let's begin now. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, the Resistance was in trouble. Resistance fighters had destroyed the First Order's superweapon, the Star Killer. But now the evil group had arrived to seek revenge. The Resistance needed to evacuate its secret base on Dakar and fast. Pilot Poe Dameron found the leader of the Resistance, General Leia Organa, surrounded by advisors on the bridge of the Resistance cruiser. He asked her if he could try to distract the First Order so the remaining Resistance transports could join the rest of the fleet in space. Leia trusted Poe. Permission granted. Poe leapt into his X-wing with his trusty droid BB-8. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>